0: This episode is brought to you by PwC. When unprecedented times are all the time, it's time to start walking the talk. Leaders like you turn to PwC to see and stay ahead. Upskill your workforce, use intelligent automation, and transform big ideas into breakthrough reinvention. Explore the human-led, tech-powered solutions that help you reinvent. It's all part of the new equation. Learn more at pwc.com. The Radio Memories Network is brought to you in part by Liberated Syndication, podcast publishing made easy, LibSyn.com. That's dot com. Welcome to the old-time radio network detective stories, continuing America's love affair with private eyes. We now go back to the early days of radio and our imaginations with our feature presentation. Nightmare Town by Dashiell Hammett. Read by Stuart Milligan. Episode 1 A Ford, whitened by desert travel until it was almost indistinguishable from the dust clouds that swirled around it, came down Izzard's main street. Like the dust, it came swiftly, erratically, zigzagging the breadth of the roadway. A girl of twenty stepped into the street. The wavering Ford missed her by inches, missing her at all only because her backward jump was bird quick. Her dark eyes flashed annoyance at the rear of the passing machine, and she essayed the street again. Near the opposite curb, the Ford charged down upon her once more, but turning had taken some of its speed. She escaped it this time by scampering the few feet between her and the sidewalk ahead. Out of the moving automobile, a man stepped. Miraculously, he kept his feet, stumbling, sliding, until an arm crooked around an iron awning post, jerked him into an abrupt halt. He was a large man in bleached khaki, tall and broad. His gray eyes were bloodshot. Face and clothing were powdered heavily with dust. One of his hands clutched a thick black stick. The other swept off his hat. I beg your pardon. If I hadn't been careful, I believed I'd almost hit you. The girl turned her small back on him and walked very precisely down the street. He stared after her until she'd vanished through a doorway in the middle of the block. Then he shrugged and turned to look across the street where his machine had pushed its nose into the red-brick side wall of the bank of Izzard, and now shook and clattered, as if in panic at finding itself masterless. A hand fastened upon his arm. He turned, and though he stood a good six feet himself, had to look up to meet the eyes of the giant who held him. "'We'll take a little walk,' said the giant." The man in bleached khaki examined him with whole hearted admiration. There were nearly seven massive feet of the speaker. Legs like pillars held up a great hogshead of a body, with wide shoulders that sagged a little, as if with their own excessive weight. He was a man of perhaps forty five, and his face was thick featured, phlegmatic. You're big, said the man in khaki. Let's wrestle you ten bucks against fifteen I can throw you. Come on! The giant chuckled, took the man in khaki by the nape of the neck and an arm, and walked down the street with him. Steve Threefall awakened without undue surprise at the unfamiliarity of his surroundings, as one who's awakened in strange places before. The feel of the shelf bunk on which he lay and the sharp smell of disinfectant in his nostrils, told him he was in jail. His head and his mouth told him he'd been drunk. And his three-day growth of beard told him he'd been very drunk. As he sat up and swung his feet down to the floor, details came back to him. The two days of steady drinking in white tufts on the other side of the Nevada-California line with Harris the hotel proprietor, and Whiting, an irrigation engineer. The boisterous arguing over desert travel. The bet that he could drive from White Tufts to Izzard in daylight with nothing to drink but the liquor they were drinking at the time. The start before dawn in Whiting's Ford, with Whiting and Harris staggering down the street after him, waking the town with their drunken shouts. He chose not to think of the ride, He'd won the bet, though, even if he couldn't remember how much it was for. "'So you come out of it at last,' inquired a voice. The steel-slatted door swung open, and the giant who wouldn't wrestle filled the doorway. His shirt was decorated with a shiny badge that said, "Marshal." "'Do you like breakfast?' he asked. "'I could do things to a can of black coffee,' admitted Steve." You'll have to gulp it. Judge Denver is waiting to get a crack at you. The room in which Tobin Denver J.P. dealt justice was scantily furnished with a table, an ancient desk, a dozen uncomfortable chairs, and half as many cracked and chipped china cuspidors. The judge sat with his feet on the table. They were small feet, and he was a small man. Well... What's he charged with, he kept his feet on the table. The marshal drew a deep breath. Driving on the wrong side of the street, exceeding the speed limit, driving while under the influence of liquor, endangering the lives of pedestrians, and parking improperly on the sidewalk. There was, added the marshal, a charge of attempted assault, too, but that valance girl won't appear, so that'll have to be dropped. The Justice's bright eyes turned upon Steve. What have you got to say, guilty or not? Oh, I suppose I did. That's enough. You're fined $150 and costs. The costs are $15.80, making a total of $165.80. Will you pay it, or will you go to jail? I'll pay it if I got it, said Steve. He turned to the Marshal. You took my money. Have I got that much? The marshal nodded. Exactly. To the nickel. Funny it should have come out like that. Huh. Yes. Funny, said Steve. The marshal restored Steve's possessions one by one, ending with the black walking stick. The big man examined it closely before he gave it up. It was thick and of ebony, but heavy even for that wood, with a balanced weight that hinted at loaded ferrule and knob. Eh, not a bad weapon in a pinch, said the marshal. Steve took it with the grasp a man reserves for a favorite and constant companion. Not bad, he agreed. Steve Threefall went down the wooden stairs toward the street in as cheerful a frame of mind as his body would permit. He had escaped a jail sentence and he counted himself lucky. He would wire Harris, the hotel proprietor in White Tufts, to send him some of his money. Wait here until the ford was repaired and then drive back. You will not, cried a voice. He jumped and then laughed at his alcohol-jangled nerves. The words hadn't been meant for him. Beside him at a turning of the stairs was an open window and opposite across a narrow alley a window in another building was open this window belonged to an office in which two men stood facing each other across a flat-top desk one of them was middle-aged and beefy his face purple with rage the man who faced him was younger perhaps 30 immaculately clothed with finely chiseled features and satiny brown hair the beefy man spoke A dozen words pitched too low to catch. The younger man slapped the speaker viciously across the face with an open hand that then flashed back and flicked out a snub-nosed automatic. "'You big lard can!' he cried. "'You lay off, or I'll spoil your vest for you!' He stabbed the protuberant vest with the automatic. Then he pocketed the pistol and vanished from Steve's sight. Steve went on down to the street and unearthed the garage to which the Ford had been taken, and was told that Whiting's automobile would be in condition to move under its own power within two days. Next, he went to the telegraph office, pausing for a moment on the sidewalk to look at a glowing, cream-colored Vauxhall Velux roadster that stood at the curb. In the doorway of the telegraph office, Steve paused again abruptly. Behind the counter was the girl he nearly run down twice the previous afternoon. Talking to her with every appearance of intimacy was one of the two men he had seen half an hour before, the slender dandy who had slapped the other man's face and threatened him with an automatic. The girl looked up, recognized Steve, and stood very erect. He took off his hat and advanced, smiling. I'm uh, (laughs) awful sorry about yesterday, he said, I'm a crazy fool when I... Do you wish to send a telegram? She asked. Yes, said Steve. I also wish to... There are blanks and pencils on the desk near the window. And she turned her back on him. Steve felt himself coloring. He went to the table the girl had indicated. But he didn't immediately write his telegram. He sat there and studied the girl. Her face was an oval. Her nose just missed being upturned. Her violet black eyes just missed being too large. But in no respect did she miss being as beautiful as a figure from a Monticelli canvas. He wrote, Henry Harris, Harris Hotel, White Tufts. I made it, slept it off in the cooler, and I'm going to settle here a while. There are things about this place I like wire my money and send my clothes to hotel here buy whiting's ford from him as cheap as you can for me he carried his telegram to the counter and the girl ran her pencil over it counting the words 47 she said long said steve but i'm sending it collect and he spun on his heel and left One end of the bench in front of the telegraph office was occupied by a very tall and very lean man in Rusty Brown. Ever been to our fair young city before, he asked. No, said Steve. What's it all about? Soda niter. You scoop it up off the desert, cook it, and sell it to fertilizer manufacturers, nitric acid manufacturers, and any other kind who can manufacture something out of soda niter. The factory in which you do all this lies yonder, beyond the railroad tracks. Suppose you don't play with this soda, asked Steve. What do you do then? The thin man shrugged. Depends on who you are. If you're Dave Brackett, he wiggled a finger at the bank across the road, you gloat over your mortgages. If you're Larry Ormsby and your old man owns the soda works, then you drive trick cars from across the pond. He nodded at the clean box hall and spend your days pursuing beautiful telegraph operators. So, the dandy was named Larry Ormsby, and he was the factory owner's son. The thin man stood up. It's lunchtime, and my name is Roy Camp. I'll be glad to have you face the greasy dangers of a meal at the Finns with me. Steve got up and held out his hand. I'll be glad to, he said. My name's Steve Threefall. They started up the street together. Coming toward them were two men in earnest conversation. One was the beefy man whose face Larry Ormsby had slapped. Steve waited until they passed. And who are those prominent-looking folks? The one in the college boy suit is Conan Elder, real estate, insurance, and securities. The personage at his side is W.W. himself, the town's founder and owner, W.W. Ormsby, The Honorable Larry's Papa. The scene in the office had been a family affair then, a matter between father and son. Steve, walking along with scant attention just now for Camp's words, felt a growing dissatisfaction in the memory of the girl and Larry Ormsby talking over the counter with their heads close together. (laughs) ¶¶ Nightmare Town was read by Stuart Milligan. It was abridged by Neville Teller and produced by Elizabeth Allard.